You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Pushkin. Wait, beware. Ahead of you lie yawning crevasses, rampaging killer whales, and Malcolm Gladwell bearing spoilers. You are about to hear a conversation about our epic Race to the South Pole trilogy. So before you do, please have a listen to the trilogy itself, which should have arrived in your Cautionary Tales podcast feed over the past few weeks. I'll wait. Don't worry. Right, as you will now know, the trilogy makes reference to Malcolm Gladwell's work. Malcolm is, of course, the author of David and Goliath, The Bomber Mafia, and other bestsellers, and the creator of the Revisionist History podcast. I was so excited when he agreed to come and talk about the South Pole trilogy, why Captain Scott's access to money and patrons turned out to be more a curse than a blessing, what it cost Roald Amundsen to rip up the conventional rules of behaviour, and the astonishing subplot in which absolutely everybody seemed to forget the scientific evidence and come down with scurvy. Now, I had assumed I'd be asking Malcolm about David and Goliath, but that is not how it went down. Malcolm had questions for me. So many questions. And I just loved trying to keep up with him. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So, now, Cautionary Tales presents a conversation between me, Tim Harford, and Malcolm Gladwell himself. Tim, I've listened to all three of your episodes, and uh, I must say I, I, I liked them very much. I thought, it was, I thought it was fascinating. I actually knew none of this. None at all? I couldn't, yeah. I, it was all kind of a blur to me, all of, these, all, these, all of these explorers from long ago. And there were all these dimensions that I didn't understand. But I wanted to start with this contrast between Scott and Amundsen. The complex thing 
And the thing that makes it really fascinating is that Scott is really the innovator, isn't he? Yeah, he, well, he sees himself as the scientific innovator. He wants, to, he wants to break ground in terms of exploring, measuring magnetic fields, discovering new aspects of the flora and fungi of Antarctica. There's this crazy side quest they do when they're trying to get a penguin egg, which is described as the worst journey in the world because they have to travel in the Antarctic winter. I mean, it's, it's crazy. He's doing technological in innovation. He has these three motorized sleds, which I think partly paved the way for tanks in the First World War. And people who think that Scott is awesome emphasize all of this ambition, all of the things he was trying to do. But of course, Amundsen just wanted to use the best possible way to get to the South Pole first. And actually yeah. that was innovative in some small ways, the, the precise design of the sled and the kind of containers that won't leak. But it was basically using techniques that have been used in Greenland by indigenous people for, well, I mean, we don't know how long, a very long time. This is actually what I loved about the story is that it's so incredibly contemporary because Scott is really the kind of, he's the Silicon Valley startup who gets an enormous amount of venture funding and proceeds to blow it all on a series of ideas and solving problems that aren't problems. And Amundsen is the kind of bootstrap entrepreneur in the middle of the country that no one's paying attention to, who's, you know, forced to use the tried and true. The original sin, it sounds like, is the fact that Scott was given everything he wanted. Everything he wanted, plus a lot of baggage he didn't want. Yeah. Like all kinds of interference and all kinds of people telling him they wanted to do this and they wanted to do that and they wanted to achieve all of these great things, which means he can't focus. He's got far too much money. He's got far too many people. His ship nearly sinks simply because it's so overladen. There's just so much on it. Yeah, that it's it's nearly capsized by a by a storm on the way to the Antarctic. But Amundsen, meanwhile, is is I mean, not only is no one paying attention to him, he's actively engaging in disinformation. He's lying to he's even lying to his own crew about where he's going. He's telling people he's going north, and he's actually going south. Yeah, I, I love the way that you phrase this as he, he's a Silicon Valley startup. Because for me, I'm thinking he's a he's a British Navy guy. He's kind of a government man. He's a military man. He's very bureaucratic, but you're, you're seeing some, a different quality in him and a different problem that he's facing. He's given everything he wants. And then he, as a result, he has lots of things he doesn't want. Those two things are linked. Yeah. That's what happens when you get everything you want. It's the careful what you wish for problem, right? The things he don't want are a consequence of getting everything he wants in the beginning. He has so many people who are pitching in to quote unquote help him that he ends up being burdened by all of their expectations, which is another, another Silicon Valley kind of conundrum. The venture capitalist gives you $50 million and then has a seat at the table and complicates your vision with all of their sense of where you should be going. The funder, the venture capitalist in this particular case is a guy called Sir Clements Markham, who is just this incredibly British, incredibly intimidating fellow. I've got this portrait of, of him and it looks to me like the expression on his face is like the photographer has just broken wind. And he, he just looks so unhappy that someone is daring to point a camera at him. And he was just pulling the strings at the Royal Ge Geographical Society in London for decades. He's so tight with Scott and Scott's family that Scott names his son, Peter, after Sir Clements. Uh, and Scott is clearly terrified of him. And it's one of these, you know, he puts Scott where he is and he can put him right back again if he, if he wants to. And Sir Clements, who's never been to the Antarctic, who's got no idea what it's like down there, just has these views. Obviously, there should be no dogs. 
Everybody who knows anything about Arctic exploration knows you should use dogs for, for any number of reasons I explain in the, in the episodes. But Sir Clements is sitting there in London going, no, no ski, no dogs. Yeah. And Scott's kind of got to do what he says. It's so funny that any story about English life um, in this period always boils down to the stupidity of the British ruling class. Sir Clements is such a familiar figure, this kind of arrogant, pig-headed uh, authority figure who thinks the who has a kind of uh, abstract notion of the way things ought to be. Yes, absolutely. Which sort of triumphs over the way things actually are. But the, the interesting thing for me about Amundsen is that he he also has these certain bureaucratic constraints. So he's the king is the patron of his expedition, and he's got funding from the Norwegian government and all of this kind of stuff. But he just doesn't care. So he lies to the king. He lies to Parliament. He's borrowed all this money, and then he, he, he basically runs away. One of the things he's doing going to Antarctica is getting out of reach of his creditors, and it's only when they can't impound his ship that he actually tells people exactly what he's doing. So it, yes, it is partly this kind of this hidebound British bureaucracy, but it is also Scott's deference to it in a way that Amundsen was not interested for a second in any of that. Yeah. To bring up the second Silicon Valley analogy, there's a little bit of Elizabeth Holmes in Amundsen. It's fake it till you make it kind of thing. Yeah, except he made it. Yes, except that he made it. But, but that idea that for someone who's attempting something incredibly difficult, that it may be necessary at some time to engage in acts of deception at the outset. Yeah. Or maybe a better way of saying it is that the kind of person who is focused in singular, um, singular enough to pull off a feat like this, is willing to engage in deception, doesn't have any kind of moral qualm. Nothing, nothing trumps the goal of reaching the South Pole. Yeah. Right? Everything else is secondary, including the truth. Yeah, and he doesn't seem to have lost any sleep over that. And I think Amundsen had this very clear vision that it would all be forgiven if he succeeded, and uh, which I suspect that to the extent that Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos had a vision of what was going on, but there's the same thing. They'll forgive me once, once it all works. Oh, I think she very clearly had that, Tim. I think that's absolutely what's driving the whole train there, is it? I can lie and cheat and deceive because if I pull this off, I'm a hero. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your personal feeling, feelings about the two men. I mean, it's clear you're partial to Amundsen. If you eat a choice between dining with two of them, Who's your first choice for dinner tonight? Oh, actually, I think they would both be, well, they'd both be interesting, but they'd both, it would be pretty awkward both ways because I think they both had these huge egos, but I don't really like either of them as people. Amundsen is this anti-hero. Uh, I'm excited by Amundsen's daring and his, his willingness to, to get things done and he makes sacrifices and he succeeds in the end. And, and Scott just seems like this tragic blunderer, but I'm not sure I'd really want to have dinner with either of them if I'm honest. Who would you rather? Scott. Yeah. I came away from listening to your, your episodes liking Amundsen, and I felt very sorry for him because the world doesn't reward him in the way that he ought to have been rewarded. He's the hero. He made it look too easy. That's the problem. Yeah. He made it look too easy. But Scott would just be fascinating. And he's so British. He's so of that period. I mean, and you would dine out on Scott's stories for the rest of your life. But if you had dinner yeah. with him, get him drunk. And he was, he, he was a brilliant storyteller. He did that, and the story was of the tragic hero. And he was writing this story of the tragic hero who's going to fail all the way along. It's almost like he knew how it was going to end. Yeah. 
there's this myth-making that goes on afterwards as well, of course, around Scott, the, the British establishment at first. He's an inspiration for the soldiers who are going over, you know, over the top in World War I. And you know, that, this is a man who knows how to die with dignity as a hero for his country. Then later that parallel is maintained, but the moral flips, which is, oh, he was just so stupid and incompetent, and so were the, so were the generals in World War I. So the whole narrative that the British are telling about themselves throughout the 20th century, the ebbs and flows, Scott seems to be the exemplar, no matter what story you want to tell, he's there in the middle of it. That was something that thought that I was thinking about when I was listening, this whole idea of the, the parallels with the First World War, which is, you know, this kind of epic example of the ability of the English to romanticize failure and stupidity and just kind of tragedy, I guess. I mean, just like that idea that dying nobly in pursuit of some futile, stupid cause, we think of that as being the highest of all. There's nothing that can stop the myth-making machinery of early 20th century England of, or of kind of late British Empire England. I just find it endlessly fascinating the way they're, they're kind of the minds of these people work. Yeah. When they finally find Scott, I mean, and it was never guaranteed that they would find him. I mean, he, he could have just been buried under the snow forever. When they finally find him in this, this terrible scene of him and his, his, the last two men he's, he's with, and they're trying to recover his diaries and they, they move his arm and his arm just shatters because it's, it's ice. It's just, it's horrific. Yeah. And they're dragging with them about 20 or 30 pounds worth of fossils. And then they haven't got any strength more and any, any strength to go any further and they all die and they've still got the fossils with them. And there was one commentator who, who said, I think he, they could have saved themselves the weight. But all the British were just, isn't it epic? They were still trying to do the science even up to the last moment. And you know, the sensible response is, well, maybe they should have stopped doing the science at the point at which they were all clearly about to die. Yeah. It's all part of the story, all part of the myth. It's some mixture of a suicidal impulse and imperialism. You know, it's like what happens when grandiose national dreams coincide with psychological neuroses. Yeah. You end up dragging the fossils with you. And it's really this, this weird kind of turning point in the British Empire as well. I mean, the British Empire is, lasts another half a century, really, until after the Second World War. But the, the glory days, or if you, if you prefer, the, you know, the, the terrible days of moral outrage, they're all in the past. All the conquering, the exploitation, the stealing other people's land, the telling other people what to do, the, the slave trade in the earlier centuries, that's all happened. And Scott and his crew are just trying to race to be the first person to this arbitrary point on this icy desert. There's nothing there. There's no resources. There's nothing. No, there are no people. And yet it still matters to them. It's that last gasp of, of empire. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell and I will be back in a moment to discuss how Scott and Amundsen viewed their own chances, why Amundsen didn't seem to get the recognition he deserves, and what we can learn from imperfect experiments. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. 
It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm back with Malcolm Gladwell. I was curious about who do you think at the moment both men get off their boats and strike out on this expedition, who do you think is more confident in their heart of pulling it off? Does Scott think he has a realistic chance? I think without a doubt, Amundsen. Scott is worried about Amundsen from, from the start. He knows Amundsen has started closer to the pole. He knows that because Amundsen is traveling with dogs, which have certain advantages, that Amundsen is going to start earlier in the spring. So for those two reasons alone, he knows Amundsen has this fantastic advantage. Scott is very confused in the way he expresses this because he will sometimes say, well, I'm not really a big fan of dogs. They don't really work. And then in the same letter, he'll say, well, Amundsen is, has a big advantage because he's using dogs. And you go, well, how can you, how can you write those two paragraphs on the same page? Amundsen is always concerned that maybe Scott will, will beat him, but I think he's, he's very confident. He, know, he has a plan. He knows exactly how it's going to go. The main risk to Amundsen is that he's so eager, he starts too early, he hits bad weather, and so he, there's a false start. But um, once he really gets going, there's never really any doubt. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing's so Norwegian with the skiers going out ahead it's just like it's like it's crazy the the diaries you've got these the, the, these diary entries from scott saying oh it's, it's terrible the ice is forming on the nostrils of the ponies they're sinking through the ice this is our spirits are very low this is really hard and amundsen's diaries he's telling stories about racing with this world champion skier and trying to do these sharp turns and falling over and isn't it fun and you know he's telemarking yeah he's doing these telemark turns and he's he's joking that oh i don't he at least this guy pretended not to see me fall over and they're just they're having fun on fresh powder and it could not be more different the impression that they're painting of themselves in their diaries now maybe their experiences were more similar than their diaries described although I kind of suspect not. This is a, a, a massive hypothetical, but there was something in Scott's attempt that seems very late empire. But there was a moment when the British Empire's kind of ability to pull off these kinds of feats would have looked a lot more like Edmondson. 
I'm wondering if, if the British Empire is beginning in the late 19th century as opposed to ending. Yeah. Does Scott work? In other words, is he a victim of the kind of encroaching bureaucratization and sclerosis that attends to a country in decline, an empire in decline? I mean, my sense is that a, a lot of it is the conservatism that comes from ha having something to defend, the feeling that you, sh you should be winning every battle, that you've got loads to lose, and not much extra stuff to gain, and then that, that conservatism sets in. That, that's a guess. And early, earlier on in the British Empire, they're the plucky underdogs. I mean, you can object to the morality of it, and I think we do now, from the 21st century, object to the morality of it. But this, this, this tiny country that is just conquering vast swathes of the world, and it is incredible how they're managing to pull it off. And it's much more entrepreneurial, much more dynamic, much more improvisational, much cleverer than Scott and his cohorts, his, his, his contemporaries, seem to be able to pull off. Maybe another way of saying is that Amundsen sounds, he sounds like an 18th century English explorer. He does. And Amundsen is, is from a very young country. I mean, Norway is only, only just got its independence. So it's very aware of its need to establish itself and to show the big boys that it can do something. So that, I think, comes across very much in what Amundsen is doing. And he's like that as well. He's got that scrappy underdog mentality. But this brings up my last puzzle about, about the story, which is that the British sort of readjust their expectations and turn him into a hero. And Amundsen does not, even when his own country... He isn't the conquering hero that, you, that he expected to be, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. I grew up in Canada. Canada is, a, is psychologically a lot like Norway. You know, we're too small. And if you win a bronze medal in the Olympics in, for Canada, it, you're treated as if you won the gold. Bronze is considered to be, it's I'm unbelievable, all bronze, you know what I mean? So Norway, it's tiny. It's, they got nothing going on. And this guy, one of their own, goes and defeats the English at one of the great adventure prizes of the era. And yet they come back and they're like, eh. They're excited at the time. I mean, it's, a, it's huge at the time. But then the question is, well, what's the, what's the second act? And actually, in the end, Amundsen gets tied up with the same kinds of obligations that, that wrapped around Scott's neck. And he has to do these, this scientific experiment because he owes somebody a favor. He has to do all this stuff and he hates it. He doesn't want to do it, but he feels that he has to do it. And there's this slow, slow decline and this, this feeling of the one-hit wonder rock star. It's not fair to describe him as a one-hit wonder because he did several other amazing things that no one, no one had ever done before. But this sense of fading glory. And 10 years later, after the First World War, and people are saying, well, Amundsen, oh yeah, he, oh, he's still alive. He's still doing it. And he becomes this slightly ridiculous figure who's, who's striving for relevance. He needs money. And people who, who once thought of him as a hero now think of him as a bit, a, you know, a has-been. Yeah. And it's, it's a very sad end. Yeah. If you make a list of most famous Norwegians of all time, if you ask Norwegians for their list, you know, Magnus Carlsen, Jacob Ingebrigtsen, is where is Admonson on that list? Is he, has, he, has he recovered his reputation with the passage of time? Oh, he, he must have. He must have. And fun fact, Roald Dahl, the great children's author, and not just children's author, uh, was named after Roald Amundsen. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, Roald Amundsen, he was, he was big news for a time. At a certain moment, he was one of the first, he was one of the most famous people around. But then, you know, the First World War, people had other things to worry about. Yeah. One question that I wanted to ask you, having worked on this, one of the subplots of this epic race between these two men is scurvy. 
And what's weird about scurvy is we're told that James Lind, a Royal Navy surgeon, proved how to cure and indeed how to prevent scurvy in 1747. This is nearly two centuries before this race, which is in the early 1900s. You just need lemons or oranges. It's fine. And he's a British Navy surgeon. So the British Navy, among all the institutions, should understand this. And Robert Scott is also a British Navy officer. And yet somehow by the time we get to the age of Arctic exploration, people have either forgotten or they no longer believe the result of James Lind's experiment. And that's a, a puzzle that I, that I wrestle with in the, uh, in the episode. But your most recent season of revisionist history is all about experiments and what we learn from them or what we don't learn from them. And are you surprised to hear of this great experiment that proved this wonderful thing and then everyone somehow managed to ignore it? Well, I thought the way you talked this through to me was very, in the episode, was very convincing, which was Lynn does an experiment, but he doesn't finish the experiment, or he can't. Yeah. He can't tell you why it works. He's made a general observation. You put it all the ways in which lemons aren't as good as oranges. If you boil the orange juice, it, vitamin C disappears. If you use copper, that leaches out the ascorbic acid, which is what you need for scurvy. Lynn discovers something, but you realize that a, a piece of knowledge has to exist within an ecosystem to be useful. And there's no ecosystem. Lynn discovers a stray fact. And a stray fact is of limited use we real, in the real world. And without it, that fact being anchored, you know, you end up with these paradoxes of 200 years later. Scott is like, his men are dying of scurvy. Like, and you're, you know, you're left baffled. I, I'm curious, so is that a, a tendency that you see more often? You've, you've been thinking about all these experiments. You've, you've told all these stories about these different experiments that have happened, that have been deliberately designed, that have accidentally occurred. Do we often conduct experiments and then not realize what it is that we've actually found because we've got nowhere to take advantage of the knowledge or to plug the knowledge into to some wider theory of the world? Well, I would say, you know, the most interesting th point you make in that episode is that they didn't understand that there was a kind of, for a long time, that there was a window that you could go without vitamin C for a while and be fine, and then boom, the hammer comes down. Yeah. Which is an incredibly, first of all, a difficult thing to, as you point out, to find out. And the implications of that is you can think you've solved the problem and you haven't. I guess what this is saying is that the thing that people often misunderstand, I guess, about modern science is the value of having a vast number of, you know, academics out there who are treading over the same territory, right? We sometimes r roll our eyes about, oh my God, do we really need to have a hundred research facilities funded by the whatever? But we do. This is what was the problem with scurvy, right? Yeah. You need to have 25 different labs around the around England doing work on scurvy in the 19th century so we could have teased out all of these little qualifying facts and so we could have populated the kind of ecosystem yeah and it wasn't and it actually wasn't just lind i mean there was somebody before lind there were people after lind but there weren't enough of them not only was this discovered and then forgotten or misunderstood it was discovered and then misunderstood and then forgotten multiple times then we went through this whole cycle of people believing in this thing and then not believing in this thing because they just didn't have enough of that extra work to, to attach it to their understanding of, of how the world worked. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because re reporters and scientists, I think, learn the same lesson over the course of their careers, which is you think you're done and you're not. You know, all those qualifying facts you lay out about scurvy that were misunderstood, there's more to scurvy than lemons. 
than than don't oranges rather, right? I mean, just the lemon. I thought just the lemon distinction. I was thinking, who on earth would have thought there was a difference between lemons and oranges in their ability to kind of deliver the 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 crucial ingredient for stopping scurvy? Yeah, well, it's the limes. The limes is the real because they're just they're just green lemons, right? Limes are just green lemons, except turns out they're not. And the Brits are falsely called limeys. They should be called oranges. Yeah, well, they 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 are correctly called limeys because they're drinking lime juice, and that's their problem because they they wrongly think that limes are just like oranges and lemons. Yeah. When I'm cooking, if a recipe calls for lemon juice or lime juice, it's like yeah, it's the same. It's not the same. It's not the same. But it, but since you don't know what vitamin C is, oh right, I misspoke. It's the difference between oranges and lemons on the one hand and limes on the other. Yes, yes the crucial. You see, it's so subtle. It's so easy to lose track. A commission in the British Navy awaits Malcolm for your failure to have yes, fully, fully internalized the distinction between different citrus fruits. Um, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. It's a wonderful series. Thank you to Malcolm Gladwell. And if you've not done so, subscribe and listen to the latest season of his podcast, Revisionist History. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.